And please turn to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. And we pick up where we left off last communion time at verse 6, where we had earlier considered how the bride had sought the one that she loves. And uh, then when she found him, she held him and would not let him go until she brought him into the church. And now we see her as Christ sees her, starting in verse 6. And this is a wonderful portrait of how our Lord Jesus Christ sees us who are in him. Let us now hear the word of God, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. Amen. May God bless this word to us. Let's pray. O glorious God, what a beautiful word this is. And we need help, O Lord. The minister needs help that he might rightly divide the word of truth, that he might proclaim the excellencies of Christ to this congregation. Lord, may the word of the Lord be as a a sword strapped to the thigh of the minister to wield it, to in order to banish the fear of the night that the people of God might have, that they may be drawn to the light in Christ. And we pray that the people of God would be ravished with the sight of the Savior. Make the preaching of the word accomplish these aims, Father, for only thy Holy Spirit could do it. And so, Father, now, Unto me, who am less than the least of this all saints, would you give to me an utterance that I may proclaim the excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, the theme of our preparatory sermon is anticipation. In our last uh, preparatory service, we saw our need for a spiritual or heavenly mind But as we lamented, as you probably did, as I have, that we are not often a spiritual people. Often there's a a level of carnality that is mixed into our soul. We also heard in that sermon that the remedy to our heart's defects is a glorious view of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the remedy is not in ourselves, but it is in our beloved. And as we look upon him all the more, as we have a greater sight of him, we become more heavenly minded. And we are transformed to consider him all the more. And that if we would bring our deficiencies that we discover this week to the Lord's table, after seeing who is there seated with us in a heavenly way, we would find, after bringing our faults in repentance and faith, that the Lord will greatly minister to us 
as he meets us, cleanses us, and strengthens us, even beautifies us through the grace that is given to us at the supper. But you might still ask, would such a glorious and magnificent Christ receive me? Would he receive me with all of my deficiencies, all of my carnality, all of my sin, and all the many ways that I spend time more in the wilderness than than in heaven? And our text is so wondrous in this, beloved, that it shows a Lord who is eager to have you come to him, that delights in his bride and delights in him coming to him. He, he delights in us. He loves us. He yearns, in fact, and this is astonishing for us to come to him. And he says, if you will come, he will truly beautify you and he will magnify your graces that he himself will give you. And so he means tonight to draw us to the table with this resplendent sight of himself to behold not King Solomon, but to behold King Jesus out of the word of God, to drink in his magnificence, but also to see, and this will become clear in the text, how he has with joy prepared heaven for you. With joy, he has prepared heaven for us to revel in his glory and to show us what he is also making of ourselves, something truly beautiful and without spot and stain, a glorious bride that he has prepared for us himself. And and we see here the king's heart is made glad on the day in which we came to him by faith. And so we have to see the gladness of his heart as we are drawn to the supper. And we often think of King Jesus, right, as king of the saints and king of the nations. But we also must see him today as king over our own heart. That he has been crowned by every believer, true believer, as king over their own heart on the day of our espousal to him. All of these glorious truths are before us in the word of God. And this is a fitting text to prepare us for the supper. And so our theme is tonight, the king's joy. In receiving us the king's joy in receiving us we'll consider that under three heads first a consideration of the bride second the king and third the crown first the bride well I cannot go too fast I have to uh, always especially considering the time in which we live in which this book is often neglected uh, consider how it is that we treat this book and I'll be brief here because most of us here understand this um, as this book is the Song of Solomon, but it is called the Song of Songs, meaning it is the greatest song of all, it is a portrait not of an earthly love, ultimately. It is a portrait of a heavenly love, the love of loves. If it's the Song of Songs, and there's a marriage here, it is the love of loves that we consider. And boys and girls, what's the greatest love of them all? It is the love of King Jesus for his church. The love of King Jesus for his church. And we ask, as we consider this book, what love under heaven could possibly compare to the love that we find here? You think of this, if this was a book for earthly husbands, husbands, how poor we would be here, wouldn't we? Right? We're not glorious and majestic. We're not this kingly figure, right, that has attendants attending unto us. This cannot be us, ultimately. And the Shulamite here is not a representative of wives in earthly marriages, is she? Always running about, seeking after her husband and lamenting her pitiful condition so often. 
You see the gulf here, right, between the king and the bride. And it shows the gulf between Christ and his uh, heavenly bride, the church in her natural state. And we see the glory of this book on how he brings this woman to himself out of a pitiful condition. He beautifies her, he glorifies her, and he desires her. And it's a wondrous thing to, to us as the church of Jesus Christ. And we think on this then for our children who are not wed, or those of you who are single, or those of you who are widowed or divorced, you would ask yourself the question, if this is about earthly marriage, is this the one book in the Bible that is not for me? And the answer is no, of course. Right? This book in the Bible sometimes is most of all for you, because you sometimes uh, feel the strain of not having an earthly companion. And yet here it is, you have the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest companion of all. No, this book is for all believers. And Ephesians 5, as you well know, teaches that um, earthly marriages are but a shadow of the heavenly. That's the proper use of looking at our earthly marriages. Um, after all, we will not be wed to our earthly spouse one day when we're translated to heaven. And we will be wed to the Lord to be his forever. And so this book is a great heavenly and royal marriage of the church to Jesus Christ. As Revelation 21 says, right, she is adorned for her husband and she will reflect the glory of God. And that's what you're finding here. If you interpret this book through the entirety of Scripture, you find its themes throughout. And this book is a portrait then of the infinite love, infinite love that Jesus has for us. We consider that a little bit on how all of his attributes, his divine attributes, they are one, really, right? His, his love is his holiness, is his goodness. You know, all these attributes are one. He is simple. And so then his infinity meets his love, and his love is infinite towards us, his people. And so that's what you see here, a love infinite and profound. The genre of the book is allegory. We don't interpret the Bible allegorically unless the genre calls for it, which it does in case of the psalm, just as we interpret parables, not literally. Otherwise, you would say something like Christ is a door. Right? Or uh, Christians are literal sheep. You are all sheep, literally, if you were to take parables, literally. Uh, and the reprobates are literally goats. But we interpret this book through allegory um, of Christ's love for his church, and the imagery is found throughout Scripture, and we constrain ourselves to interpret it according to the imagery that we find throughout the Bible. So we don't just go wild with it. Well, with that reminder of the glories of our book, we pick up verse 6. The question, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? And the question is put to us, and we have to ponder it. Who is this? Who is spoken of here in this verse? Well, it's not as clear, and this is one of the deficiencies of the English language, boys and girls, uh, because we don't have gender cases. But in Hebrew, it makes it clear this is a woman, that this is feminine. Uh, and that makes sense considering, you just think about context, right? She's perfumed with powders. And the question is, who is this woman? That's what's being asked. Who is this woman who's coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke rising up from it? And the answer is, plainly, this is the Lamb's bride. This is the church. The question is being asked by the daughters of Jerusalem. Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness? And they seem astonished by this. Who is this? 
In a lot of ways, it seems like this woman is unrecognizable to them. They don't perceive her. Who is this? Why is that? Well, this woman is absolutely stunning. She's profoundly beautiful. She's radiant. As you, heard, you would hear in Revelation 21, she having the glory of God. It's God's glory that shines upon her. She reflects his radiance. And the reason that the daughters of Jerusalem are so stupefied is there seems to be a remarkable turnaround from the first chapter. You remember in the first chapter, the bride is called dark or black, blackened from the wilderness of her sin by the heat of the sun, which is her sinfulness. Her sin had blackened her outside of Christ's sheltering wings. But now they see her coming out of the wilderness and they ask, who is this? Right? You know that they were, they were very familiar with her. And so there's this remarkable change in this bride from one who is black but comely to one who is altogether radiant. She arises almost reborn like a phoenix from the place called the wilderness. And this is the bride of Christ coming out of the wilderness of sin, isn't she? You know, this is something that ought to um, really comfort all of us. The bride doesn't come from paradise, does she? She comes from the wilderness, as all of us do, who are the bride of Christ. We don't come out of the royal palace, naturally. right? We even sang that in Psalm 45, forget thy father's house. We have to forget the wilderness that we have come out of. We, she is headed to heaven. We are headed to heaven, but we come out of a wilderness. She comes. We come out of a place that is racked with sin, even our own sin. We come from a place that is dry and barren, as in Psalm 63. My flesh longeth for thee where? In a dry and thirsty land where no water is. And when God rescues us, he shows us as being in a wilderness. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is in the lot of his inheritance. He found him where? In a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy 32 verse 10. You see, the Lord, his portion is his people. He finds them in a wilderness. He leads them out of it. But he has them always as the apple of his eye, always near and dear to them, even in the wilderness. That's how the Lord sees us, beloved. He plucks us out of the wilderness, a place of sorrow, a dry place, no water, only tears. A place that portrays our sin and misery on earth. And you ought to remember that yourself. All of Christ's people come out of an earth after Genesis chapter 3 a land of thorns and thistles of the curse. We come out of the curse, don't we? Cursed with death, cursed with misery, cursed with sin. None of you have come out of uh, places that would proclaim you have a righteousness of your own. She comes as a bride, not because she was beautiful in the wilderness, but because Christ makes her beautiful, calling her out of the wilderness. All we have is filthy rags in the wilderness. We come out of a terrible place, corrupted by sin. Children, you know this. Where did John the Baptist preach? In the wilderness, didn't he? Showing what he calls God's people there. And then what does he do though? Right? He, he preaches repentance and he points them to whom? The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He points them to Jesus on the banks of the Jordan. 
ready to give living waters to his people. So here we find a bride who has fled to Christ, made a new creature in him by the Holy Spirit. She is regenerated. She is reborn. She arises out of the wilderness clothed with his righteousness as a beautiful garment covering all of her sin and then given many graces from the Lord which arise like perfume. And she is so absolutely radiant, beloved, that those who perceive her say, who is this? Even though they have known her before. What you're seeing is really the unseen reality of regeneration, aren't you? Of what it is to your soul when it is born again. This is what Christ has done for you, believer. Something you can't see externally, but you are given a vision of it here, especially of what you will be one day when you are glorified. This is what Christ, your beloved, has done to your soul. He has taken someone who is clothed with menstrual rags and given her such beauty. And this is what you have. And so with eyes of faith, this this Sabbath, you must behold what Christ is doing for you and what he has done for you. You know, when we were in the wilderness, away from the life of God, we were mired in our sin, just like that Samaritan woman at the well, weren't we? Or the sinful woman who wept at Jesus' feet before she knew the Lord. Why do we have so many portraits of these women, these sinful women in the Bible? So that we would perceive ourselves. Right? We would perceive ourselves. And you see the tenderness of the Lord to us. And we see how he is making us something. We all once went whoring in the wilderness. Our soul is black as night. But now we are portrayed as a glorious and spotless princess. What does Ephesians 5 say on this point? Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. You hear that? A glorious church, not having what? Spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 27. So this is the question, who is this? And this is how you believers are perceived by the Lord. Consider, maybe the angels see these things more clearly than we do. Can you imagine what the angels perceived in you before you were regenerated? A corpse. The walking dead. See nothing but death and lifelessness, dry bones, rotting, black in the soul. But then when the Holy Spirit breathes life into you, what do they see? The angels are astonished and they see Christ's garment of holiness upon you, covering your every sin and your graces, uh, God's graces, Christ's graces being infused in you and they waft like perfume out of you. All of this is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that he would give us eyes to see how we are perceived by himself. And that's why the bride here has this aroma of myrrh and frankincense about her. These are the savors of Christ. We emit his aroma as his bride in Christ himself. We remember this from a while back in Song of Songs 1 verse 13. He himself is called a bundle of myrrh. These are his graces that emit from us, making us Christ-like, 
such that in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we read that, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. This is how God perceives us, more than the angels, right? This is what God perceives us. This bride coming out of the wilderness on pillars of smoke, of incense arising, beautiful, such that the angels would say, Who is this? He gives you many good graces. And now in your heart, beat faith. These three great graces, right? Faith, hope, and charity. The principal graces that you have. And they are the aroma of Christ. And you even think about this, the question, who is this? And you think of your life and how so many of you have had the testimony of those who have known you before Christ and those who have known you after. And some, even in the church and even in your family, say, who is this man? Who is this woman that Christ has done such a great work? I don't even recognize them. Sometimes you see a face so hardened in sin, touched by the grace of God, and now is full of love and compassion. Worshiping God, loving neighbor, and you say, who is this? Christ has done such a great work, I know, to many of us in this room. And we have to perceive it as his love that has done it. Her perfume, her powder, is called all the powders of the merchant. Now, contextually, of course, children, you remember merchants in those lands were men who would go to faraway places to bring their goods. And so this is an exotic powder she is perfumed with then. And you think about where Christ went, if Christ is a kind of merchant figure. He has purchased our salvation. He has come from heaven to give it to us. Right? He's come from the most exotic place. He's come from heaven above, that most faraway place that no one can ascend to. He has come down from heaven for his bride that we would sing of as we sing in the metrical version in Psalm 18.16. And from above the Lord sent down and took me from below. What a glorious thing that is. From heaven his spirit takes hold of us when we're in the wilderness and fills us with his savor, his heavenly perfume when he converts us. This is the turnaround the Lord has made in you, believer. He robes you with his own perfection, the garments of righteousness, and then he imputes that righteousness to you. That's what that is. That saves you, and you receive by faith alone. This is that justifying, justifying righteousness that comes from faith alone. But he has also made you a new creature, hasn't he? And he infuses your heart with many graces which sanctify you. And your heart beats with faith, hope, and charity. You exercise the grace of repentance. You long now for good works. And these good works are God's works in you. And these bring glory to God. And this aroma of Christ now suffuses and surrounds you as you grow in the grace of sanctification, becoming more holy as he is holy in your own person. And then one day this will be totally complete as you arise to heaven as though on pillars of smoke here, as you and your body are, are united, your soul and your body are united, and you rise to meet the Lord in heaven above. And this work will be complete. And when you are in the midst of all of the enemies of God, and with the church, with Christ and the Spirit and the Father there, the enemies of God may well ask, who is this that is coming out of, of, of the earth? so beautiful out of the wilderness. And we ourselves, I think, will be astonished by what he will make us. 
you remember first john 3 2 beloved now we are are we the sons of god and it doth not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is now you think about that on our week of preparation what's the very next verse if we have this hope in us and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure See, that's what he's making you, isn't he? And if that's what your destiny is, ought you not to purify yourself today to be this chaste virgin? Pray more for Christ's perfuming, that his savor in you would grow, that he would purify you, knowing what you will be one day. And remember to give thanks to the Lord as well, that if you are his, that you yourself would see yourself before Christ uh, uh, what you once were if you remember your conversion or when he's done mighty works in your life and you would say to yourself who is this now who was that then and who alone can account for the change come and give thanks at the supper and say with John Newton right I am not what I ought to be I'm not what I want to be I'm not what I hope to be in another world which is what we're seeing but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, pray, make me more as I hope to be in another world. To be this morally radiant and resplendent bride, not in an outward show of beauty, but that my inner man would be nourished even as my outer man is perishing. And that love would abound in my heart towards both God and man, that the beauty of the king would be reflected in me, his beloved. So with that thought, let's consider our second heading, which is the king. Now in verses 7 through 8, the text shifts from the bride to behold the king, her king and her groom. And this really has to be where our attention ought to be. Not on ourselves, right? We're glad to see what the Lord is making of us. But we ought to always have our sight be on our groom. He that is altogether lovely, and that all of our loveliness is in him. We read in the first part of verse 7, Behold, pay attention, behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Well, let's begin with the possessor of the bed before we consider the bed itself, Solomon. Now, as you know, Solomon was David's son. And as you probably also know, his name um, in the Hebrew comes from and derives from the word shalom, which means peace. Solomon is the peaceable one. And God gave it to Solomon to build the temple, not uh, his father, David. You remember why that is, boys and girls. It's because David was a man of war, a man of blood, and Solomon was a man of peace. And it would be a man of peace who had to build the temple because he would have to represent Christ, who is the bringer of peace, who is the one who brings peace into the world. And so Solomon points us to the greater son of David, always. He points us to Jesus Christ. What does Isaiah 9, verse 6 call Jesus? The prince of peace, after all. Not only that, but children, you remember that Jesus, often in the Bible, said in the New Testament, one greater than Solomon is here. Right? Here is the one who will be, bring us peace. And so when you open up the Song of Solomon, 
right? What we have to do is say one greater than Solomon is here in these words, in these pages. So we see past Solomon in this text, and we see that this bed is Christ's. And we're told to behold it. We are to note it. It is noteworthy. Well, what's a bed, children? It's a place upon which we rest, isn't it? And what do we know of Christ's resting place, his dwelling place? It's his church, isn't it? The Lord elsewhere in his word says this is something to note as well. Psalm 132, verses 13 to 14. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. What does he say? This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. You bring all that imagery into the Song of Solomon, and it's astonishing, isn't it? He's saying, behold his church. This is where I will rest. This is where I will dwell. This is where I will dwell with my bride. I have not only chosen it, I have desired it. Whenever we note the desire of the Lord, it is almost astonishing for us as a people, isn't it? The Lord of hosts, glorious, majestic, says he desires us for his habitation. What is it that we heard of about heaven recently? Why did he create heaven? So that he may dwell with his people forever. He didn't need heaven, but we needed heaven in order to dwell with him. And so he says, behold his church. He says, keep an eye on it. Keep your eye on the church and on heaven, as you have heard recently. You must meditate on that place that Christ is preparing for us in John 14. See, as you come and ascend as the bride prepared for her husband, her groom, you are to keep your eye on that place where he said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And what else did he say about that? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You see, this is God's, this is Christ's resting place with his bride. He desires her beauty, he desires her, and he desires to dwell with her. And he says, I go to make this place that you would be with me forever. You need to keep that destination in view. Not only where you're going, but who you're going to be with. You're not destined for the wilderness. You're not destined for the world. You're destined for this great bed that you are going to rest with Christ on forever. He is fitting you and preparing you for this place. And this is what is happening now. Even as we come to the table, more and more we are being fitted for heaven. As we sup with him in this foretaste of the heavenly uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, we are becoming more and more fit for that supper. He weans us off of this world by his body and blood, which we commune with, where he is seated, not on earth, but in heaven. And the Spirit then draws our affections through his body and blood into heaven, weaning us off of this world. He says, behold his bed, behold heaven. And this desire for heaven ought to be, ought to be in our hearts as we long for the table, the Sabbath. And we are to bring our desires for him and for heaven in prayer before him, that our prayers would waft like pillars of incense 
that the bride is hoisted by in this text. And when you behold his broken body and blood at the table, you remember how it is he alone that has earned this place of rest, this peace for you. The mediator has won this peace. He has won shalom between God and you that you might rest. And when you see the elements and you see the travail that he underwent in this life and you think on the rest that you have, you must marvel that the one who said that he has no place to lay his own head on this earth did that so that you may have a place to rest your head forever with him in heaven. Through his restlessness on the earth, you have rest with him so that you for all eternity may rest on him. And it's not just eternity that is in view. Even today, as we have seen in Deuteronomy, this bed, um, not in Deuteronomy, as we saw in the Psalm, Psalm 132, that this bed signifies his church. As you heard, Christ's resting place on the earth is the church. He dwells in the church by his Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And so we are to desire the church of Jesus Christ on the earth as well, because this is God's dwelling place. This is Christ's dwelling place by his Spirit. And this is why it's a terrible thing if we ever say, I have no desire for the church, but I have a desire for Christ. Those two things don't go together at all, because Christ dwells on the earth through his church. And that leads to the men who are about the bed who are surrounding the church. Threescore valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. These men who surround the church, they're called the valiant of Israel. Verse 8 gives more of a description. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. Now, who are they? Well, it seems that apt that the men who surround the church with these swords would be watchmen. They would be ministers of the gospel, the valiant men of Israel. Uh, their sword is that of Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. They're experts in war. They're specially trained to rightly divide the word, 2 Timothy 2.15. These are men that are employed in his majesty's service, so to speak. After all, they're called soldiers of Christ, 2 Timothy 2, 3-4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. This is what ministers of Christ are. right? They labor to please Christ. They actually endure hardness. They're called watchmen to protect the church. But our text says they're here and Due to time, we can't go too far into this, but because of fear in the night, Christ ordains them because of the darkness of this present world. Ephesians 6.12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So they preach the word of God, the sword of the Lord, to protect Christ's church because of fear in the night, that she may find rest with her beloved. They lead her to him as refuge, as good watchmen ought to. They guard and protect the flock, 
so that the flock may find rest in the church in Jesus Christ. They are of Christ's own appointment, and the elders join them in protecting the church. Think of Acts 20, 28-30. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So they are there charged to protect the church from the darkness all about. But they don't only contend against the darkness out there, beloved, but they also contend of fear in the night in the soul. In here, the bride may have. Not just wolves out there, but also your fears and your trepidations as well and the darkness that you find in it. These men are sent by Christ to ease the troubles of your soul and the darkness there. They do it by shining the light of Christ through the word of God, exhorting you to turn to Christ. They preach the word of God in such a way that they say, come unto Jesus that you might find rest. They take texts like Psalm 116 and say, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. They proclaim these things to you, that you might know that you can rest in Christ. When the fears of the world, the fears of the devil, the fears of your own flesh arise up, They tell you to hand over the dark portions of your soul to the Lord Jesus. This is their their work. Return unto thy rest and know his promise. The Lord will deal bountifully with you. You know, we ministers are meant to remove your fears and apprehensions if you are in Christ. Especially if you fear to come to the table. If there's that dark night of the soul. And you worry about your sinfulness. Am I too sinful to come to the Lord? They are to say, repent of your sin, beloved. This is a table for sinners. And they are to bring you to him that you might have rest on his bed. That you would come to the Lord and they would that you would remind yourself of the gospel once again. Out of the word of God. It is a sword that is meant to prick your heart so that it would bleed and that the Savior would bind you up again. And that's what he's calling you to at the table if you would turn to him. And it is my job as a minister of the gospel to proclaim that to you. To come to your beloved if you mourn over your sin. And to hand that sin over. And you have to ask yourself, and I ask you too, what troubles your heart that Christ cannot cure? What darkness in your own soul do you fear that Christ cannot banish? He can banish it all, beloved. And you must come into the light and away from the darkness of the night and come to his glory and his radiance and he will change you and perfect you. That's his promise. But you come by faith, you come in repentance, you come in hope and you come in love. And he will do it. In verses 9 and 10, we read of his chariot. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. What's this chariot? Commentators are actually quite divided on it. 
But what's important here is that the text says something profound. He made it himself. Uh, that's a clue that this is Christ's own work that made it. It's shown to be a costly conveyance. It's made of the wood of Lebanon. It's this wood that is almost uh, impervious to any rot. Made of silver, gold, and purple. But here's the thing. It's all bound together with love. This chariot is a conveyance of love. Being paved with love. It was made out of love by the bridegroom himself to take his bride away with him. You know, the chariot has, as heaven has been in view, a certain destination. You know, boys and girls, you might remember Elijah and the chariots of fire that came before he ascended where? Into heaven. So this chariot is an instrument of Christ's own work to take his bride up. What is it? Well, if we even cannot nail it down, I think the prior thoughts are enough to get the point. I'll give you what I find to be the best um, interpretation of the chariot. James Durham saw this chariot as the uh, covenant of redemption, that instrument by which Christ accomplishes our salvation. He considered the materials here, but especially finding the purple covering to have special significance as a representation of the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember what Hebrews 13.20 calls his blood, the blood of the everlasting covenant, the covenant of redemption. And so in any case, the covenant is the instrument by which Christ executes our dispatch to heaven. And he himself executes all the terms of it, doesn't he? He himself told the Father, I will go, I will procure salvation for my people and they will come to heaven by way of my work. Such that when we come to the sacrament, right, what do we glory in? In those words of institution, this cup is the New Testament or new covenant in what? My blood, my blood. And so when you come to that cup, the chalice, you say, this is his love that undergirds and covers the covenant of grace. Right? What is in the cup? It is the love of God. It is the love of Christ for me. Such that, of course, the apostle says that Christ loved him and gave himself for me. And so this covenant of redemption was not forged out of anything but love. And the sacrament, you will see at the sacrament, this road to heaven covered with his blood and paved with his love. For he will open to you the gates of righteousness one day in heaven. And so what our Lord has done for us out of his love is full of is, is filled here in this text. An eternal covenant that before you were born, children, before your parents loved you, if you are Christ's, he uh, resolved to give his life for you one day, to bring you to heaven. How can you ever, ever look for love outside of his? How could you ever despise this great love that he had had? that he was willing to lay down his life for you while you were yet a sinner. To deliver you safe and secure, to give you, even in this life, he's given you ministers and elders to watch over your soul. He gives you his spirit to ensure you'll never be lost and shed his blood to secure salvation. There are glorious meditations that arise out of this text, aren't there?
Well, in our final heading, and we'll close with this, we'll see his desire for us and how he is crowned by us. Well, in verse 11, we read, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. You are called to behold King Jesus. Always, of course. But we are called to take him, all of him, in. To see him not by sight, but by faith. As we even prayed earlier, whom having not seen, ye love. In whom though ye, now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8 To behold King Jesus is what? By faith is to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory and majesty. This is a sight we often don't have. But again, if we had a sight of Christ, if we would behold King Jesus, we would have great joy all of our life. This is that spiritual mindedness we talked about. So I would say do that this week. This has to be primary and predominant for you. See Christ in the word of God. See that he is altogether lovely. See that he is the king of glory, radiant and resplendent, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth bodily, who is chiefest of ten thousand, who came from heaven in love for me, the sinner, who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, to behold King Jesus. Then go forth. And behold King Jesus at his table in the elements. Now, the text says to behold King Jesus with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals. Now, it says his mother crowned him on the day in which he was engaged. Now, who's Christ's mother here? You know, some people say it's Mary, uh, that even the, this blessed woman, that's not so. She didn't crown him on the day of his espousals. What are the day of his espousals, children? That's the day of his engagement. Or his day of his engagement. In an interesting way, actually, Jesus asks the question we just asked. Who is my mother? What was the answer? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. You see, his mother is astonishingly represented as those who would do his will, those who would submit to the word of God. Is that not to crown him, beloved, over your heart? This is what's in view here, is that to do the will of God and to submit to it is to crown him king over your own heart. And the day of your espousal, what day was that? If you remember it, it was the day of your conversion. When the Holy Spirit came into your heart and had you begin to believe. And this is sealed and signified by our baptism, isn't it, children? Our engagement to be the Lord's. Even as you have all been baptized, you are engaged to be the Lord's. And you are to crown him king over your own heart. But he says, behold him with that crown. You are to take note, he wears the crown that you said on the day you believed, I have crowned King Jesus as king over my heart. And you are to behold that when you consider the word of God and the law of God. Right? This is the problem with us. We don't see the one that we have crowned over our heart as our beloved. And so we, of course, don't understand why David says, Oh, how I love thy law. 
It is my meditation all the day. Because we don't see it as our beloved's law. And that we ourselves, as we have taken him to be ours, have crowned him king over our heart. What is the day of espousals to Jesus? Maybe this is where we just need to end on this thought. Would you drink it in? The day of the gladness of his heart. You who are once lost and are now found, what does Luke 15 say? The day in which you were found by the Lord. He said, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Right? He rejoices. He rejoices. The father rejoices then in the parable of the prodigal son. My, uh, my son, which was once dead, is now alive. He re- says, not just rejoice, rejoice with me. And he tells the angels in heaven, rejoice with me. I have found the one that my soul loves. Jesus says this. Can you see the joy that he has to be with you, his bride? Does he not show you that gladness and joy are actually his at the communion table? To be with you. And we're astonished by that. You know, we say gladness and joy is ours when we come to Christ. But he says when you come to him, when you come to him in repentance, when you come to him in faith, he says this is the gladness and joy of mine own heart. Would you behold King Jesus with his crown as you prepare for the supper? That you yourself, child of God, have said, I have crowned him with. The king of hearts, so to speak, of your own heart. Such that when you come to the table, you see him with faith's eyes seated there with you, giving himself to you out of gladness in his bread and his wine. Such that when the invitation comes to the table, you know, I often will bring the invitation for Matthew 11 where he says, come unto me, and I will give you rest. You should behold that great bed that he is calling you to, to rest with him forever, and that he desires you to be there, and that he delights in you being there. How many ways, then, has Christ purposed to allure you from this world, which is called a wilderness? You need to behold the King of Hearts, Every day in this world, behold King Jesus with the crown by which his mother crowned him on the day of his espousals, the day of the gladness of his heart. Why be carnally minded then? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. That is what this text is telling you tonight. Colossians 3, look to the king. And this week as you prepare, would you say, oh, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race which is set before us, looking unto whom? Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see how often the Bible says to look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Beholding Christ will put away every weariness, will put away every sin, and everything that will keep you in the wilderness of this life. And so go forth to the Lord's table filled 
with the odor of Christ, the savor of Christ, with faith, hope, and charity that are as perfume in his nostrils, and he will rejoice to have you with him, beloved. May he bless you as you anticipate coming to him on the Sabbath. And for those of you who have not known him in a saving way, would you just look upon the king? And would you flee to him, who is altogether lovely? None on the earth can make you beautiful, and none on the earth is so resplendent as Christ, with a love so pure and chaste. You will chase in vain after love on the earth, when it is available in heaven, if you will take him tonight. He rejoices when a sinner repents, and he will say of you, if this is you tonight, who have come to him, my beloved was lost and is now found, and he will tell the angels in heaven to rejoice with him before the throne. Amen. May God bless our meditation tonight. For now, let us arise and go to prayer, if able. Oh, our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank thee, O God, for him. As we think on him, Lord, we pray that the word of God would root itself into our hearts. That though we have not seen him with our eyes, we would rejoice with joy inexpressible, having seen him by faith. O oh God, we pray that the truths we have heard from so many scriptures, that a sight of Christ would transform our souls. This is what we long for, Lord, that as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we ourselves would be transformed from glory to glory. Why, O oh God, does this world have any hold on us when we have Christ before us? Would you answer that, Lord, for we cannot figure out why, and yet this world does have a hold on us? Would you take it away? Would you cause us to see this world as a wilderness? And instead, would you cause us to see and behold the beauty of the Lord? Would we all behold King Jesus? And may we all crown him king over our heart. And may we who have crowned him, who have turned to him in faith and repentance, may we remember that we have done so. And may we behold him, not just his wounds, but also his crown this week as we prepare for the supper and that any place in which we have kept a portion of our heart away from our beloved, may you, O God, uh, cause us to turn away, that we would crown him with many crowns, even as we have read in the scripture tonight. May you do this, Father, that our time at the table would be oh so blessed, that we would have such a sense of our Lord, that we would weep to know his beauty there, that when we see that token of his broken body, that we would see what our Lord has done, that he has loved us and broken himself for us. That when we see the wine in the chalice, we would see the love that was poured out of his side as his heart beat and pumped that blood from the side of his body, that he would cleanse us and purify us and present us to God spotless and pure. Lord, we are a dull people in many ways spiritually. Help us to behold Christ. This is our sole desire tonight, and we pray it in dependence upon the Lord. In his name, amen. Amen. Let us respond.